Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to Nomads Past and Present, a podcast about nomadism and nomadic peoples around the world and throughout history. I'm your host, Maggie Freeman, and my guest today is Nora Barakat. Nora is Assistant Professor of History at Stanford University, where she researches and teaches on the intertwined histories of people, commodities, and landscapes in the modern Middle East. Her first monograph, Bedouin Bureaucrats, Mobility and Property in the Ottoman Empire, published earlier this year by Stanford University Press, examines the ways tent-dwelling inhabitants of the Syrian interior contributed to and contested attempts by the Ottoman Empire to transform the desert fringe into a grain-exporting breadbasket. And that's what we'll be talking about today. So thank you so much, Nora, for joining me. Thank you so much, Maggie, for having me. I'm really excited about this conversation. So first, I think it would be helpful to explain the geographic scope of this research to listeners, specifically what I just said um, about the focus of your book being the Syrian interior. So if you could talk a little bit about what that actually means, you know, how you're defining that region um, and why you chose that region to focus on, you know, how is it culturally, politically, economically distinct from the rest of the Ottoman Empire in a way that's kind of productive for your research? Yeah, that's a really excellent um, question. So I am in a good place to start. Um, The Syrian interior for me refers to a few different things. So geographically, we're talking about a, a, a space that actually shifts in some ways throughout the temporal scope that the book covers, which is Mainly the, I mean, it really starts in the 16th century when the Ottoman Empire um, gains sovereignty over that space, and then goes all the way through um, World War One and into the early part of uh, the British and French mandates. And the first part of the book is really focused more on um, the the pilgrimage route between Damascus and Mecca. So it, it's focused a little bit more on the southern part of of that space, going all the way down into Ottoman Hejaz. And then the middle part and then the final part really focus much more on the northern part of that space, um, which is uh, contemporary, the contemporary state of Jordan and um, kind of the, the what I'm calling the interior parts, uh, Damascus and eastward parts of contemporary Syria. Um, so it doesn't correspond exactly to particular, um, you know, contemporary nation states, but what it does for me and what I think is becoming even more apparent with, with current research that's going on is think about the way that Ottoman officials um, had maintained this distinction between the littoral parts of the Eastern Mediterranean and the interior parts, right? And it's never entirely clear where the line is between those two spaces. It's not always clearly defined in terms of like administrative boundaries, but the way that I talk about it in the book is, is particularly in terms of the difference between spaces that were understood, again, by Ottoman officials as spaces of intensive cultivation. Um, and by intensive, I mean like year-round settled village, village-based, excuse me, cultivation and spaces that were more defined by other kinds of land use. Um, and that could be part-time farming. It could be um, herding more exclusively. It could be, you know, gathering the ashes of a particular kind of plant that was important for the soap industry. But spaces where people were, you know, people's lifeways were not focused around settled villages, year-round settled villages, and where there were particular um, kinds of mobility, right? And this is the these are the areas that I'm that I argue in the book that at least in the later part of the 19th century start to be described by many Ottoman officials as tent dwelling, right? Like the people in these regions are tent dwelling. And so that's what the Syrian interior does does for me. I think there's, you know, there's more and more interest in this distinction between the littoral and the interior regions. And I think that that will be borne out um, in future research, like in more precise ways than I was able to do in this book. Um, I should also say that, you know, it it also came out of, for me, this research and the dissertation came out of a very long engagement in Jordan. So I, um, you know, uh, when I, after I finished my um, PhD, even before I, way before I finished my PhD or even started the PhD or even dreamed of doing the PhD, I um, went to Jordan initially as a Peace Corps volunteer. 
And I was there very briefly and then was um, evacuated. This was during the war in Iraq, which will age me. Uh, so when the uh, American government started bombing Baghdad, they, they evacuated um, their volunteers there. And I left and returned and eventually got married there and have been sort of going back and, you know, living between that space and different other spaces, the Gulf and, and California ever since. And so it also is a way for me to imagine um, that space historically beyond the boundaries of the nation state, right? And in this imperial period, but um, you know that that very much, I think that interiority uh, is very important to the story of the nation state of Jordan itself, right? So it also has to do for me with this long engagement um, engagement with that space. And you know, when I first arrived there, I was living in in some of the some of the um, places that are important in the book, Madaba and Karak, and 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 kind of maintained an interest in those extra urban um, uh, spaces uh, of the Syrian interior. And so, as you alluded to already, um, your book covers a pretty wide temporal span as well, but you're mostly focusing, I think, on like the second half of the 19th century, um, where, as you say, there's this uh, shift in Ottoman governance in this region um, from what you define as a pilgrimage-based form of administration to a more intrusive one that's organized around a conception of land as property. Can you talk a little bit more about that kind of temporal um framework what does that what does the ottoman pilgrimage administration look like starting around the you know 16th century through the you know mid 19th century Um, and why is there this shift in the mid 19th century yeah so first of all i mean and this is another for for people who are thinking in terms of, of dissertation to book out there that chapter, the first chapter of the book on the that, that starts in the 16th century, but really focuses on the 18th, um, was nowhere in my dissertation and wasn't something that I had really thought about trying to do. It became more and more important for me when I was writing the book to, or thinking about the book, to be able to articulate more of what that shift actually entailed, right? And really be able to think about um, what is what is changing in the mid-19th century and why this particular form of governance that we see becoming more generalized in the mid 19th century is different from what came before. Right. So, um, so that's a wonderful question to start with because it meant, you know, it added years to the writing process of the book and meant a a much longer temporal scope and also larger geographical scope and a really different kind of thinking about what 19th century governance is actually about. So in the first chapter, I have this argument about something that I call layered sovereignty. I'm not the first person to talk about layered sovereignty, but I think it's a useful con- context, concept for, um, for what you're asking about the, the governance of, of the pilgrimage route. You know, and it's based on a body of, of scholarship about early modern law and sovereignty and geography, um, especially in, in uh, you know, land-based empires. And, you know, that's a, a literature that posits a shift from types of governments that were more focused on human alliances to ones that were more focused on territory and, and, and eventually property. I see both happening in the early modern Ottoman context, actually, before the late 19th century. So like I was saying, in these intensively cultivated regions where the Ottomans, even in the 16th century, are really interested in agricultural tax revenue, so much of you know what's now Palestine-Israel, this is actually a fairly territorial form of governance, right? It's pretty intrusive. It's based on the territorial unit of the village. But outside of those zones of intensive cultivation, um, I, I try to explain, it's more based on these different kinds of human alliances, right? And I'm arguing um, you know, that prior to the late 19th century, Ottoman governance in the interior around the pilgrimage route was really main, was really focused on maintaining that route, like protecting it and maintaining it. So it's kind of a corridor of intensive governance that goes between Damascus and Mecca, but there's all of these regions around that corridor where um, uh, Ottoman governance is mainly being imagined through these alliances with these particular Bedouin uh, communities. And this, I mean, it continues the practices of their predecessors, right? So in the few pages in the book on the 16th century, I'm, I talk about how they're continuing the practices of the Mamluks, right? 
Um, they made deals. This is something that goes pretty far back. They made deals with certain Bedouin leaders to kind of protect and provision the pilgrimage route. And those deals become more complex and more contractual. Um, you know, that's what I try to bring out about the differences that happened in the 18th century, well before the main pivot of the book in the in the late 19th. So what they do is they they grant them subsidies, like pretty substantial subsidies to protect and, and maintain and, and provision the pilgrimage route. Um, and they have these contractual relationships with particular leaders. And this was an inherited arrangement, right? So it's, it's going down in particular families and particular communities. It's not all, it's often discussed in the literature as like the Bedouin. And it's really important to understand that it's particular communities and particular, particular groups that are involved in this. Um, and it's important, I think, to say that these, these, these men, these elites who are taking these subsidies, they're not exactly like notables in Haurani's idea. They're not exactly intermediaries. Their authority didn't, because I don't think their authority, at least in the earlier period, really came mainly from the Ottoman state, right? It comes from a host of other more localized social dynamics that um, I think we don't even understand very well and that I don't try to really explicate in the book in much detail. I, but the way I see it playing out in the textual sources that we do have is that the Ottoman state was kind of one of many sources of these elites prestige, right? Both material and social that they sometimes would pay attention to and sometimes would not. Um, and so I outline this idea of what I call the sphere of submission, which is also a spatial idea, right? Um, and it's a space that that's figurative, but it's discussed in, ter in spatial terms, like you leave the sphere of submission to the Ottoman state and then you return, right? And it's not only Bedouin that talk about this, it's also other kinds of elites like tax farming elites in more, in more cultivated regions. Um, and it, it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't tangibly, I don't think, refer to a territory. It refers to being a part of a group of people. But I do think it's important to recognize that this was really different from the kind of, of much more territorial sovereignty that we find in these regions of intensive cultivation, but also from the kind of like uniform or attempting to be uniform territorial governance that they tried to implement from the late 19th century onwards. And, you know, outlining this layered sovereignty and sphere of submission, it's also my way of kind of both problematizing, but maybe also just nuancing this idea of a tribal frontier that is pretty ubiquitous in the literature on this geography um, for the early modern Ottoman period, right? And it kind of posits this geography as entirely autonomous and kind of uncharted from the Ottoman perspective. And one of the things I really wanted to emphasize that is that when, you know, these Ottoman officials come into this region in the late 19th century and they're saying, we've never been here before, that that's actually an administrative claim and a political claim that is not, that, that needs to be taken as such, right? It's a legitimating claim. Um, this is an empty land that we're now going to transform when in fact there have been Ottoman officials, you know, in various capacities in this region since the 16th century. Um, and so what do we do with that? And how do we think about 19th century governance differently um, if we don't take those claims at face value, right? Um, I guess what I, what I'm what I also try to argue is that we need to see the 19th century situation as the out, eventual outcome of a very long shift, and especially the subsidy situation that I was describing really changes a lot in the 18th century, and that was something I was able to kind of pull out from a lot of pretty detailed research in the in the um, the files, the, the the registers that detail these subsidies and how much was going to which community and who was taking it and whose names were written down and whose weren't. And so in the 18th century, the amount of subsidies rose precipitously. The number of people receiving subsidies also rose. This network of human alliances becomes much, much thicker and much more complex. Um, and it, it, it's not, it's still not imagined, it's not imagined in a territorial way, but it, it's qualitatively different from what um, we see in the 16th century. And I think at that point, certain groups whose trajectories I follow in the, in the book, you know, in particular, the one that I follow that are really involved in this pilgrimage administration is the Beni Sacher. And they, um, they really started, I think, at that point to derive a lot more of their power from those connections to, Ottoman, to the Ottoman state, right? So well before even the 19th century. In the 18th century, it really looks quite different. And they're also involved in other Ottoman dynamics in the 18th century. So especially like competition between different provincial governors, because the provincial governors in Damascus get very involved in that subsidy situation in the 18th century more than they were before. 
Um, and also tax farming elites who are, you know, they're, they're kind of coming in and out of cultivated zones and, and involved in, in these tax farming um, uh, competition between different tax farming elites. This is a period of commercial expansion across this region. Um, and they, you know, they get a lot of cash, which is a, a, a currency, you know, like a pretty unified currency through this expanded subsidy system. And that also allows them to participate in all of these commercial dynamics, right? Um, markets in grain, but also markets in weapons and coffee. And, you know, they're kind of, um, this is not exactly sort of their direct connection to the Ottoman state, but I think it, it changes um, their involvement in this whole scene, which is very much an Ottoman scene um, in the 18th century. Um, I might, I'm, I may have like gone off the rails of your question a little bit. I think I also just wanted to say that as you're asking, you know, in some ways about the first chapter of the book, which is about this pilgrimage administration, but there were other ways that some of these Bedouin groups were involved in the Ottoman, you know, where there's other ways that Ottoman sovereignty is playing out um, that I really, you know, try to explain in much more detail with a dearth of sources in chapter two. Um, and that's about, you know, um, uh, people who were not as involved in the pilgrimage administration, like they were never collecting subsidies. They're also, they're much more involved in agricultural production. And when I say agricultural production, I don't just mean, you know, growing plants. I'm talking also about um, uh, livestock um, related uh, production, industrial what what would be imagined later as industrial production, but is is much smaller scale during this period. So like clarified butter, um, again collecting ash for the for the soap industry, which is mostly based in um, in cities in like uh, in Palestine and and, and Damascus, um, you know. And they some of these groups are you know they're they're also doing part time farming, so they are involved in producing grains. And there are um, elites in those groups that are collecting revenue from agriculturally producing villages and are really, you know, imposing themselves as as tax collectors. And some of them sometimes claim, and this is something I get into in chapter two, that they have Ottoman permission to do that, right? That they're actually, um, you know, they have Ottoman state sanction. I, have, I haven't found Ottoman records that that collaborate that claim, but you know, these are groups that were really oriented towards like Palestine and Damascus much more than Hejaz and Mecca. So that gets into that geographical scope I was I was talking about earlier. Um, and, you know, it, it's it's important to recognize sort of what they were involved in as well, especially because there will be a very big claim in the mid 19th century that they that that space is uninhabited, empty, um, you know, unknown to Ottoman officials again. But there's a lot of evidence that it was quite known that, you know, one of the reasons the Ottoman um, government comes in in the first place, you asked about why the shift happens in the 19th century, um, is because they see uh, the, they see production there really expanding. And there are more and more kind of merchant capitalist types coming from places like Palestine and Damascus into this region to, to you know, set up plantation farms and, um, you know, sort of utilize this landscape in new ways. And the state kind of, you know, the Ottoman state is, is interested in getting a piece of that pie, right? And all of those new initiatives were done through deals with Bedouin leaders in that region, right? Like they were very much recognized as, um, as you know, this is not a, a property situation in which there's individual land ownership necessarily, but as the people in control of that land. And if you wanted to get access to that land, you needed to come to an agreement with them that they were going to get part of the revenue or you needed to pay them money and buy it or, you know, some arrangement needed to happen because they were sovereign over that land. And so that claim that this is empty is um, is, again, a very political one. And so it's important to recognize all of those, you know, other groups that weren't associated with the pilgrimage, how much they were sort of in this Ottoman sphere um, as well prior to those reforms in the late 19th century. I think you asked why that shift occurs, um, and then I'll I'll stop and let you ask more questions and ask me to clarify things that I haven't been clear about. But you know, why does that shift occur? I have sort of broad um, part of it is that is that uh, sort of capital expansion, commercial expansion argument that I'm making that I just made. But there's also just broad um, uh, shifts that are occurring from the late 18th century onwards in the way that Ottoman state power is working. Right, it's much more focused on um, territorial governance in general. I don't think this is something that's specific to the uh, to the Syrian interior. I think that that's that's a process that really starts in the late 18th century because of like 
broad uh, trends of commercial expansion and interstate competition, but it becomes much more intensive in the mid-19th century because there's this idea that these grain-producing regions will can suddenly be much more prosperous and there's you know, there's a global grain market that didn't exist before. And so there's this idea of sort of um, optimism about these spaces. And I think that's what also leads a lot of these capitalist entrepreneurs into this region. So that's a big part of it. But then after the 1870s, the mood really shifts to one of like much more anxious. We need to utilize every piece of the empire, right, in order to maintain our um, viability because in the 1870s, the Ottomans lose a lot of territory. They lose a lot of productive population. Um, they go bankrupt, right? It's really a shift in the way that, you know, the viability of the state, I think, is, is imagined. And um, that, I think, it push, you know, really pushes a much more territorial, much more we need to know every plot of land and make sure it's, it's productive, but also that the people living there are loyal, Right. And so I, I talk about this this shift towards a much more um, a much larger concern with with loyal subjects and making sure that everybody is is a productive, but be loyal. maybe in the previous it was that they be productive and then loyal. And after the 1870s, they have to be loyal and then productive. Right. There's really much more concern about about um, those kinds of, of issues in order to maintain territorial sovereignty. So that's what I think is sort of pushing this shift on a broad scale, but it's important to see that that commercial expansion that actually brings like an Ottoman military contingent into this geography in the late 1860s is that these Bedouin groups are a big part of that, right? They're participating in it. They're involved in these, um, you know, uh, agricultural production in these local industries. Like it's, they're, they're a part of it, right? They're not just sort of the objects of, of this shift. So maybe mm -hmm. I'll stop there. Sorry, I went on forever. Yeah, no, thank you. Uh, that was a very clear encapsulation of what I, I know is a very um, complex uh, historical phenomenon. Uh, but so as you already, I think, started to gesture um, to a lot of this as well, you know, against the backdrop of this larger Ottoman kind of state uh, transition and transformation in this region in terms of its form of governance, um, you know, the Bedouin participation in that process uh, and the nature of that participation shifts as well uh, against that backdrop. And specifically, there was one sentence in your book that kind of stood out to me that I'm going to paraphrase and hopefully not misrepresent too much. Uh, but basically, you say that across this or through this transition state power shifted from being located in kind of the bodies of its mobile representatives so in the form of these kind of bedouin elites these people who are acting as tax collectors and in turn collecting subsidies from the ottoman states um, and were kind of acting as touch points between their tribes if you want to use that term and the ottoman state so shifted from being located in the form of those people to being located more in permanent villages and property and so i was hoping you could just talk a little bit more about what exactly you mean by that how we should imagine um, those two kind of maybe not competing but two somewhat kind of different forms of Ottoman administration in this context um, and this transition from a more kind of diffuse, mobile, and personal form of governance to one that is um, kind of fixed in permanent uh, places and things and commodities. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that this idea of, you know, shifts in forms of governance from being located in human alliances to being located more in, in ideas about territory and, and property, you know, it, it's sort of there across a lot of um, arguments about state formation. And what I'm trying to do here is, is, is sort of variegate it more and think about in the Ottoman context, how we have those two forms, you know, coexisting in many ways. Um, for a long time. And it's in the late 19th century. And I mean, really, really, it's a shift that's happening across the 19th century, right? But where I see it really um, becoming very well articulated, and one of the things I spent a lot of time doing for this book is reading Ottoman codified law and thinking about what it meant to codify laws 
that were theoretically applicable across the empire, right? Um, rather than having sort of specific, regionally specific, um, provincial or even other kinds of, of administrative category laws, right? That 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 sort of anticipated a degree of, of variance across different geographical spaces. In the 19th century, um, you know, you really start to see uh, a form of lawmaking that's meant to apply across the empire. And what does that look like? And how is it actually imagining, um, you know, these uh, agrarian spaces? And in the earlier period, there were some general laws, and then the regional laws imagine those agrarian spaces, I argue in the book, and I hope this is stuff that, you know, people who actually work on the earlier modern period more than I do engage with, right? Because, um, you know, I could be wrong about this. But what I saw when I was reading those laws was an imagination of agrarian space as really, really quite um, eventful and variegated and people doing all sorts of different things with the land and um, some people doing full-time farming, but some people doing part-time farming and, you know, beekeeping and mining and I mean a lot of sort of different forms of of land use different you know things that people do in forests versus um, the the codes of the 19th century which are much more focused on well first of all we have like how is administrative re regulation how is administrative governance imagined and in the 19th mid 19th century 1860s 1870s through these provincial administration regulations it's really imagined in very standardized ways that go from province down to the village right and and even like particular communities within the village um and again this doesn't come out of nowhere in the 19th century this is something that i've been developing for a long time it's just that it's it's really um coalesced in these codified laws that i see you know really being implemented in different ways in local courts in much more standardized ways and there's a new court system to implement this stuff and in that you know, hierarchical imagination, it's all based on the village, right? Like the agrarian unit is the village. Um, if you're in a more, uh, you know, uh, a different kind of built environment, then it's the town and the town quarter, right? So it's it's this, like, and I call this the Ottoman agrarian imaginary, and I'm, I'm working from, you know, ideas about British South Asia with that, um, with that, um, with that uh, phrase, and I just see it becoming much more focused on this idea of settled village cultivation in the 19th century. At the same time as that's being articulated, there's um, a uh, an articulation. You know, there are are um, you know regulations that are also these programmatic regulations that start coming out in the 1830s and 1840s that are supposed to refer to the entire empire that are saying you know people who and this is where the term ashirats which i translate as as tribe for and i'm sure we'll, we'll get to that later in the conversation what that's about but that these people who you know are are the issue is they're moving from province to province or moving from district to district, which is problematic for taxation and problematic for all different kinds of administration, that they should settle down in villages, right? And I'm not the first person to talk about this, but Shad Kasaba has talked about, I mean, there's a number of, of Ottoman historians who have talked about this shift towards more stasis, right? But that goes into this agrarian imaginary of we're going to do village administration, you know? And what I argue though is that there's really a shift in the way that that is implemented between that pre-1870s period and the way that it's implemented after and pre-1870s period it's a much more violent process i think it's um militarized and you know um my colleague chris grayton has written about this at length in, in his recent book um in anatolia in the syrian interior um you know these these really intrusive engagements happen later i think because this region is is imagined as productive and worth putting a lot of time into only after those 1870s crises but by then there had been so much negative experience among some of the same officials especially um in places like iraq with militarized settlement that the implementation is is very different right they want to create sort of model they want to sort of convince these communities to settle down through giving them land um, allocations and through um, you know showing them the joys of settled life basically but they're not sending in the army to make them live in houses right and that is is really important because i think it does create a space for particular um, and they're they're not exactly elites, right? They're people who exist below, who are sort of you know administering like 500 people rather than 5,000 people to enter this administration. And these are the people that I'm calling Bedouin bureaucrats, right? They're like 
um, the, the, the position is the head man. But what's, you know, the head man is a position that was imagined for the village administration, right? And what ends up happening in the Syrian interior is that the, this Ashirat, this tribe category, becomes, you know, sort of um, integrated into that village administration, which is nowhere in codified law for the whole empire, but is kind of, you know, I, I imagine it in the book as, um, uh, from the Ottoman perspective, it's a kind of compromise, right? They're saying, like, we're going to let um, this, uh, this entity continue and we're not going to force settlement, um, but they're going to be in the same administrative, uh, they're going to be in the same administrative rubric, right, which is they're going to be integrated into that and they're going to have headmen that do the tax collection. And it's really important that in the previous period, 16th century, those elites that I was talking about who were gathering subsidies, they weren't doing taxation. They weren't collecting, you know, this was a revenue receiving community rather than a revenue producing community, at least the people who were involved in the pilgrimage. There's others that the Ottomans are trying to tax those more agricultural. And taxation is really crucial, right? Because that's one of the main sort of um, uh, conduits. That's one of the main ways in which that figure of the Bedouin bureaucrat becomes um, a figure at all, right, is, is these two main processes that I'm talking about are taxation and property administration, right? And that's the way that these, you know, and by property administration, I mean deciding who gets um, legal claim to which pieces of land. And that's, uh, uh, you know, something that does really play out in the late 19th century vision of, of, um, of governance that I think is, this is when they start making, you know, and it also has to do with it also has to do with the, the part of the 1870s crisis that I didn't mention yet is that there's this influx of refugees, right? So that prior to the 1870s, there had been, you know, the Ottomans are putting out these laws that say people should immigrate and we'll give you land. People should come into the, the empire and we'll give you land if you make it productive. After the 1870s, there's much more of a discourse of land scarcity, right? And so um, they're really concerned about who's getting which land in which regions and i think that is is very different from the way that they had imagined this landscape before um as as fairly marginal and as a space where there's there's quite a bit of variegated kinds of production that they're not particularly interested in because they don't think it um it will produce you know uh much revenue they're mainly just concerned with with the pilgrimage route i don't know if that's answering your question very well but um but yeah to me that it's a long shift but it is just looking at those laws from the 16th century and then looking at the 19th century ones, it's it's apparent, you know, there's this different imagination of this agrarian landscape. Yeah, absolutely. And so this, maybe this is a good time to talk about terminology and categories, uh, both your own um, and the Ottoman legal ones that you just mentioned. Uh, and so first, I'm as we uh, were discussing before we started recording, um, you use the term tent dwelling throughout, I think very uh, explicitly and very carefully um, to refer to the people you're researching as opposed to some of the more, uh, I don't know, conventional terms that might be used to refer to the Bedouin in this context, like nomadic or mobile or pastoralist. Um, and so what that sort of does for the reader um, is redirect our attention from a kind of, from thinking about these people in terms of a lifestyle or a subsistence method per se um, towards thinking about a specific practice of building and dwelling. Um, so I'm just curious if you can say more about that, about that choice on your part to use, I think, that very uh, specific term for, I would imagine, very specific reasons um, and what that term is is doing for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think this is such an excellent question, and I, and it is a very um, deliberate choice. But it's really exciting for me to talk be talking to somebody in an architecture program because it's a specific choice that comes out of my reading of Ottoman documents, not so much my desire to focus in particular on on, on building practices. Although I think that's you know that's something I, I I wish I had spoken to an architecture person before finishing it so I could have I could have engaged that more productively because I actually think it is really 
important. Um, so tent dwelling, tent dweller, I think at, at a couple of points in the book, I, I refer to this, it's a direct translation of the term that brought me to this research in the first place, reading court records in Jordan um, from the late 19th century and being surprised that so many of them referred to um, a, a term that, that is Sukhan al-Khiyam, which is literally the inhabitants of the tents, right? Um, and in Ottoman, this term is Heimenishin, again, like the, the people who live in the tents. And that comes up not in court records, although some Ottoman language court records, um, just the ones I was looking at are in Arabic, but a lot of Ottoman reports and correspondence. And this was the way that these records, these textual corpora that I used to write, especially the second, well, the last three-fifths of the book, i.e. chapters three through five, were, um, were using to describe these people. And, you know, I have used the term nomad before. It is in a lot of my previous publications. It, for a long time, it was in the title of the book. Um, I spent a long time thinking about it, and I ended up feeling like it was problematic for this book, especially because of the argument that I'm trying very hard to make about the legal construction and the legal destruction of Bedouin rights to land, right, in particular. So I think the term nomad in English is really associated with images of like constantly moving communities with no meaningful association with the land that they move over, um, as well as this, this construction and this idea that we find ubiquitously in Orientalist literature that they were um, opposed to agriculture, right? And um, I think it's retained that meaning. I think that, you know, when you're um, putting a book title out into the world, that that meaning is what people imagine, right? And it makes us harder. It makes it harder for me. It makes it harder for me, and I imagine it made it harder for readers to imagine that communities who self-define as Bedouin in the present, that their ancestors and, you know, in, in, in historically, these communities were really, um, you know, engaged in these really diverse forms of land use that I'm trying to describe in the book, including part-time agriculture, including grazing animals, including gathering herbs. So it's really important to me to to use a term that didn't denote, I mean, there's kind of this negative reason, right? And a desire to stay, um, to stay in the language of, of the documents. Um, you know, um, I think that term, I mean, I, I guess I can say one more. I, I think the other thing that I'm trying to do is, is, is specify and deconstruct the idea that property rights grow out of a particular kind of labor on the land. Right. Which is, of course, you know, I talk about in the book, this is this, this Lockean idea. And that's sort of the basis for this broader comparative thing I'm trying to do between different imperial entities in the in the 19th and 20th centuries. And I think that, you know, the, the idea of the nomad actually grows out of that idea of property. Right. Like that it's it's um, it's kind of its conceptual opposite. And and that, again, for me, was became problematic because um, I really wanted to, to take these historical connections to the land. Seriously, and by seriously, I mean um, legally meaningful, right, or potentially legally meaningful. And so, um, you know, I, I don't get, I said I don't get into, into architecture. I think it would be really wonderful, and that you and others will do, to, um, and I think it's actually researchable based on textual corpora, to see how building materials and styles changed over time, especially perhaps in you know, along with these changes in relationships with state power, right? Um, you know, it, the other thing I'll say is, is in, in, and what your question really got me thinking about is, you know, the tent dwelling thing is significant. Why are they calling them tent dwellers? Because they're fitting them into an Ottoman administrative universe that was based on the village, as I was describing, by the 1860s. So, you know, not unlike, again, European travelers, the Ottoman officials are imagining the ideal agrarian unit of production as the village. And these court records that I was reading, you know, they describe tent dwellers as outside of that, but also as integrated because it's always, you know, it's the people who live in the tents that were located within particular administrative units, territorially imagined administrative units. So it's the tent dwellers, inhabiting the environs of this particular town in the district X, right? So by focusing on the place where the tents are <laughs> and focusing on the structure of the tent itself is another way to kind of integrate them into this administrative um, geography. That is not in the book, but your question made me think about why 
they're focusing on the tent, these Ottoman officials. And that is very much, I mean, it is extremely difficult. And I only get to this, and I, I was very excited to find these records, you know, in the Ottoman archive, these, um, uh, they're described in the book, these regular court records, Nizamia court records, where you have like word for word depositions and there's all of this discussion among Ottomans about how word for word these really were and how mediated they were. And all of these discussions are important and productive. What was really striking for me is that they would be, um, you know, these these transcripts of conversations and the Arabic was very colloquial and very different from anything I found in any other um, records. And so that, you know, made me feel like they were less mediated than other records, but but I'm sure it's very problematic. That's the closest I could get to you know, sort of self-descriptions from this period. And I do use a lot of oral history um, uh, in the second chapter, but it's oral history that was written down during the mandate. You know, like it's it's very pretty far removed from um, the actual historical periods that I'm looking at. So I think this, this question of self-representation is extremely important, but because I couldn't get to that very well, um, I, I chose a term that was very uh, you know, that was the term that jumped out at me in the records and the term that that the records um, continued to use. And I guess, you know, even with this thinking about about dwelling, I think it's still I, I think it's very helpful, right, to be able to recognize that that's what sort of fit them into this administrative um, universe, even though it's it's very much the state perspective. But thank you for that question. Yeah, thank you. Um, and so what about the other um, often somewhat contentious uh, term that can come up in this context, which is you've already talked about this actually already is the tribe uh, and this um, the kind of predominance of uh, this idea of like the segmentary tribe uh, as the sort of core unit um, of Bedouin um, social systems. Um, how you talked about this already, the Ottoman term Ashira, um, and how that appears in um, Ottoman legal documents. Um, but could you talk about um, sort of like you just said about um, sort of Bedouin self definitions? How do you think that that the, tr the tribe was imagined and sort of uh, used or understood internally um, among mm -hmm. the people who you're researching in this period. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I I try to get to this, especially in the final chapters of the book, because I think it's also really important to the way that this category is used, um, uh, even in the 20th century and in the mandate um, um, uh, mandate context. So. You know, I explain in chapters two and three, especially that this tribe, the Ashirat in Ottoman, Ashira in Arabic, really, you know, it becomes this standardized administrative category through that process of codifying provincial law that I talked about in the mid-19th century. Um, before that, the terminology, and I mean, I have a short um, piece about this in Ijmus as well, but before that, the International Journal of Middle East Studies, the terminology is much more varied, right? So when we're talking about the, the rural landscape in like the earlier Ottoman law, 16th, 17th, even 18th centuries, there are multiple terms to refer to people who are, you know, understood as being outside of that village administration, right? Um, especially across different linguistic regions of the empire, right? So Ashirat is, is an Ottoman word that comes from Arabic. There's, you know, uh, Turkish derived words and Persian derived words, um, you know, uh, Balkan language drive words. So I argue, you know, that the tribe really becomes imagined as the term to describe anything outside of village-based administration in the mid-19th century. Um, and again, through those laws that are saying these people need to integrate into village administration and the Ashira, the tribe needs to actually disappear, right? So it, it that it's in that context that it really starts to, to function um, administratively like a village. Um, but the other, you know, the really striking thing for me is that what I see happening in, through court cases, through court cases in these very local, so I'm, I'm looking at court records from one particular district, it's a very sort of localized um, micro study, right? Um, is that this, this tribe category kind of becomes the reference point for all sorts of struggles over resources, again, especially around taxation, right? So in the last chapter, I, I talk about these people who come into court, you know, this is especially like first decade of the 20th century, and they're trying to move animals between these administratively defined tribes in order to um, avoid taxation, or they're contesting. So the, the, the term Bedouin bureaucrat comes out of these people um, who took, and again, they were, they were not 
really elite in the previous period. They were people that had some sort of um, local uh, stature, but they were, um, you know, they really gain a lot of power from their um, connection to the Ottoman state. And they take on these positions as, you know, in the Ottoman um, administrative universe, this is the headman. They take on these positions that are involved in taxation and property. Um, and, and gain a lot of power and, and wealth, I think, through that process. But in the um, early, first uh, decade of the 20th century, you know, before World War One, I, I see people coming into court and, and saying, wait a minute, these headmen should be taking care of the entire tax burden for the whole community, for example, right? Like, we're not going to pay them taxes and really using this administrative category of the tribe as a way to contest those demands um, for revenue, which, and I get into, there's a lot of, you know, sort of nitty gritty detail about collective versus individual revenue and the Ottoman state administration that I'm not going to get into here. But um, what's striking to me about that is that it, it, and again, having had a long couple of decade engagement with, um, with, uh, you know, society and politics in Jordan, that it strikes me as somewhat similar to the way that the tribe becomes a reference point and a very contested one. Um, in you know, especially in, in conversations about about progress and modernity, um, in these contemporary contexts, and especially you know, in Jordan, there's pretty limited electoral politics, but the tribe is a huge point of contestation in electoral politics, right? Like, which ones are powerful, and how they're, if and how they're manipulating votes, and so on and so on. And so it seems to me, and I think that would be a very I wished that, you know, the conclusion is relatively limited, but like I wished I could have sort of traced that more deliberately through the mandate period and into the um, uh, the Hashemite period in the Jordanian context, because I think it's, you know, it, it would be very interesting to see how it sort of becomes pivots, you know, in the in the 19th, in the early 20th century, it's pivoting around livestock issues, right, and taxation of livestock. It definitely is going into other resources later. Um, and so, so that's one of the w ways that I sort of, you know, thought about that. I, again, like the sources, I'm not trying to make some big statement about what the quote unquote tribe was or was not um, prior to these state reforms. What I am trying to say is that we can't think about this term outside of the problematics of, um, uh, you know, modern state administration after about the 1870s. Like it, it ceases to, to exist sort of outside of that, um, of that sphere, because that sphere, it's not, doesn't completely define it, but it, it becomes a reference point, right? And so that kind of has to be taken into account if we're going to think about the meaning of that of that term um, uh, during that period, and arguably before, because it was also the basis for um, for all of that subsidy stuff that I was talking about. But again, the language was much more varied. Variegated. I've never seen the term Ashira, for example, or that that term in those subsidy records. They're using different terms, and it's and and it's yeah. So it's but that's that's the way that I was trying to um, that's the way that I was trying to uh, to to get into that. I mean, I also think like uh, this. Maybe we would come to this in a different question, but something I really wish I could have done with the book, and I, I hope that people do in the future, and I think that people are doing more with the mandate period is really interrogate this term Bedouin, right? And, and think about um, what, the, what that term means and where it comes from and what it's denoting in terms of who these communities are and what it's denoting as, as an ethno-racial distinction. I and category, um, I, I think in, for me, in order to really do that from the Ottoman perspective, which I think is, is really crucial if we're really to understand not necessarily, you know, what the British or the French meant by it, but to understand how it came to be um, rearticulated in these um, in these contexts, especially in the post-colonial period. I always feel like understanding more about the Ottoman past, which you know went on for 400 years before a very short mandate um, administration. Um, you know, to, to do that takes another book. Like it's really a very, I, I just want to emphasize, I think it's a very complex question. I think it's one that should include research that goes back to the 16th century. Um, I, I think it's problematic to say, well, this is what they were saying about Arabs in the late 19th century um, on its own without going back and seeing how that changed over time in, you know, con in, um, in uh, tandem with all of these new ideas about state governance. Right. Like I really think a, a very good sort of long durée 
idea about that would would help us gain clarity. But, you know, Bedouin, I can say like in the court records, the term Bedouin does come up from time to time, but the most common term by far is Arab, right? And that that is so, so you know, I, I thought a lot about how to deal with that in the end kind of didn't deal with it. But I think parsing that and figuring out, you know, what, what that means in, um, in the Ottoman imagination is is extremely important. So I'm just putting that out as an invitation for everyone. And again, I do think there's really exciting new research about how that's working in um, in the mandate context. Yeah, I wanna circle back later um, to what you just brought up about um, the mandate period and some of those shifts um, in terms of British and French administration over this region and these people. Uh, so I'm going to put a pin in that. Uh, but first, before we get there, uh, I I would love to talk about resistance because uh, we've talked about, you know, Bedouin and Bedouin elite participation um, in Ottoman state making in this context. But you also bring up some really compelling instances of Bedouin resistance um, to Ottoman state formation uh, and to what is sometimes perceived as the kind of encroachment and over-encroachment of the Ottoman state and Ottoman policies. So could you talk a little bit about that? Uh, You know, how are um, these figures of the headmen um, using their power and their capital both to sometimes, you know, further the projects of the Ottoman state and sometimes to uh, resist or to oppose them. Yeah. And I mean, I try to make a, a, a temporal and chronological argument about this because I really do see the 1890s as kind of a turning point um, where a lot of these um, men who become headmen enter Ottoman administration prior to that. And they don't, it's not like they leave in the 1890s when Ottoman policy changes, but I think that their roles do become a lot more contentious. So what changes in the 1890s is that the Ottoman administration, you know, based in Damascus by that point, because this region I'm talking about is mostly part of the province of Syria, they are much more aggressive about um, creating lists of what they call empty land. And by empty land, they mean places that are not, um, you know, not being utilized to a productive extent that that fits some sort of standard, which is never like clearly explicated. But, you know, they really have this this um, idea of uh, places that, well, I mean, it is sort of clearly explicated. It's about having um, yearly annual production that can be agricultural production that can be taxed, keeping that production going um, uh, every year. So if you let the land lie fallow more than three years, then it can be claimed from the state, like they're going around and really, you know, I recreate some of the lists in the book, really very intrusively looking into which land can be categorized legally as empty and then reclaimed by the state and which land can't. Why in the 1890s? Well, again, they're increasingly concerned about productivity, but they're also really trying to um, resettle refugees. And then a third reason that I think that they're increasingly concerned and that I outline, especially in chapter four, is that there's more and more interest in this region from different capitalist interests, right? Um, One that I I talk about in the beginning, I think of the chapter is um, uh, Zionist companies that are looking to buy up land um, for a colony project. And this is, this is, you know, put out very clearly in the early 1880s in this region. This is where um, there was, there was a particular um, uh, initiative to create a Zionist, a Jewish colony um, from from the Christian Zionist, Zionist Lawrence Oliphant, that's been documented in great detail, um, that would be self governing, and the you know the the uh, Ottoman administration rejects that because they see it as a state within a state, and um, but there's other capitalist interests, you know, even more. Um, uh, you know, capitalist interests from from uh, cities in Palestine and, and Syria, who are more and more interested in this land. And the problem that starts to be articulated among Ottoman officials with that is that if they come in and buy it up, then the Ottoman officials won't have any control over who they sell it to, right? So they could sell it to those Zionist interests, but they could also sell it to any number of interests that are relate that are imagined as being connected to foreign governments that could then come and, and encroach. You use the word encroach and yes, there's an idea that the Ottoman state is encroaching, but the Ottoman state, you know, these Ottoman officials themselves are very worried about the encroachment 
um, of, of foreign powers, especially by post-1882, this region is like neighboring um, British-occupied Egypt. And so they really, I mean, this is this is what, um, you know, my colleague Priya Setia calls a spy space, right? And they really see that in the documents. Like they're very concerned about who owns which land. And they also, this is when you also start getting articulations and, and very new concern about non-Muslim land, land holding. So I also talk about that in that chapter, right? Like there are families that have been there for generations um, who are a Christian and suddenly there's all this concern. Do they own land near the railroad? Are they, you know, there's a lot of new interest in who owns what land. And in that context, they start making these lists of empty land and start allocating it to um, these refugee communities. And I think that's when Ottoman policy becomes much less tenable for these um, headmen, these Bedouin bureaucrats. And I argue that they start because, you know, they're they're losing this very important resource, this, this land that they've used in various ways um, for many generations. And they start organizing um, uh, attacks, violent attacks, but then also they get imprisoned and they start organizing bribery attempts to get themselves out of prison. I mean, I argue that they're using a lot of the same tactics that they use to collect like taxes and do land registration in order to collect bribes and in order to sort of um, really mobilize support in their communities to resist this um, this Ottoman project to uh, to dispossess them, right? Because at this point, I really do see it as a dispossession project, right? Like they're making these arguments that are very typical of... Um, of uh, you know nationalizing empires elsewhere, and the ones I talk about the most are United States and Russia. That this you know production in these regions is not um, is not uh, what it should be. These people are nomad, and this is where this nomad idea perhaps comes in. And they do you know they talk about this as the 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 um, the uh, the roots of uh, I think the term is the roots of Bedouin or the roots of nomads. It's in the book, but they you know this is where this really this idea becomes very pejorative. And it is, I mean, I see it as, as a shift, at least in the way that they, I think that they had imagined other landscapes and done that elsewhere earlier, but it's in the 1890s that this becomes really articulated in the Syrian interior and, um, and that uh, Bedouin communities really do become. And, and I also, show, I mean, I think I try to show that they, there's sort of a unification. The headmen are coming together from a lot of different communities in a way that I hadn't really seen earlier, right, in order to launch these attacks or organize ways to get out of prison or um yeah so i think i think uh there's there's definitely a change there but that you know the administrative shift that had occurred earlier really does endure right so you know post all of this these problems that coalesce in the first decade of the 20th century taxation is still going on i mean it, it it's very much um this this modern state environment i think very much continues but it's 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 you know, it's much more contentious in that in that context. And the Ottoman, I mean, I, I argue in the book that in terms of the refugee situation, um, the Bedouin tactics are pretty effective because the Ottoman government is extremely skittish by this point about um, any kind of intercommunal violence because it can be used as an excuse for foreign intervention. And that was well established by this point. It had started, you know, much earlier in this geography. And so, you know, they also, there are more elite people who are using these kinds of tactics to avoid taxation, right? They, they, they threaten the um, Ottoman officials that they will, you know, create problems with these other groups that are inhabiting their land. And in return for not inciting violence, they get to not pay the camel tax, right? And so there's all of these ways in which they're able to kind of use um, the bind that the Ottoman administrators find themselves in in the late 19th century, which is a pretty intense one, um, in order to maintain their their control over land, but also um, sort of set the terms for what their relationship with the state is going to be. And so um, I think there's so much more that we could talk about, but um, as we're coming up on the end of our time, maybe let's return to uh, the post-Ottoman mandate uh, governments, uh, which brings us sort of to the conclusion of your book. Uh, and you identify, I think um, what was really interesting to me is um, how you identify um, really, I think, productively, uh, 
what some of the key differences were between the Ottoman um, and the uh, later European colonial forms of governance in this region and over um, the Bedouin, which is that I think often scholars, in my experience, um, tend to present those projects as not really all that different, that both of those entities um, were seeing this region as empty land, seeing the Bedouin as these kind of inferior subjects. Um, And, you know, all this sort of conversation about Ottoman internal colonialism and the Ottoman civilizing mission as being not that different, um, perhaps from later European colonial ones in the same region. Um, But I think your really specific and detailed and nuanced research uh, on that Ottoman context in turn, like you sort of said, brings to light uh, some differences and some really, I think, key and important differences um, between these forms of governance and forms of administration in this context. So I know this is a big topic in and of itself, but could you talk a little bit about what those differences were and what this, what the transition um, from Ottoman to European mandate government in this context looks like? Yeah, no, this is this is something that I've grappled with for many, many years. And I, um, I, I don't sort of um, take on the historiography very explicitly, I don't think in the in the introduction, but I but I do, I am trying to kind of come up with a more nuanced way of thinking about something that that in my mind falls under the rubric of an idea of Ottoman Orientalism or a different kind of Ottoman colonialism. Um, because like I said, in some ways I'm very, you know, I'm, I'm talking about Ottoman modes of dispossession and, you know, it's not as if I see this kind of governance as completely different. I think there's a much earlier strain of scholarship that also, that actually saw the Ottoman empire as really irrelevant to this conversation, right? That they were just weak and ineffective and that it kind of got flipped on its head somewhere sometime in the 1990s, early 2000s, um, and, and suddenly this, you know, the Ottomans were sort of paving the way for, for the mandate. I really, you know, and this is why this comparison or this this thinking in, in a framework of other what I call nationalizing, and I'm not, it's not my term, it's a term that I'm, I'm employing, um, nationalizing empires is really important, right? And I'm thinking in particular about the American situation, but also the Russian empire, United States and Russian empire. Um, that thinking about the Ottoman, you know, mode of, of governance, at least vis-a-vis the Syrian interior during this period, in terms of nationalizing empires, is more productive, um, or is is an important way that they were what they were doing was different from the colonial mandates that came after them, right? Why? Because I see the aim um, of these Ottoman officials as as standardization and as sort of integrating this region into a broader standardized uniform imperial national whole, right? Um, And that has to do with the identity of humans and it also has to do with territory, right? And this was an extremely exclusivist and violent project, right? I mean, it led to the Armenian genocide. It it had to do with those, what I was saying about the changing um, ideas about Ottoman Christians, right? Um, It really was not a peaceful thing that was happening, but it is important in in the case of these actors that I'm talking about, that Bedouin were constructed as like, well, they were constructed as Muslim, they were constructed as potentially loyal, and they were constructed as, you know, um, or as loyal, but also as potentially productive um, subjects, right? Like they're not excluded from that order. And I think that's really crucial, because that is what sort of created the space for the kinds of interactions that I'm talking about, that were not free of um, violence and contestation in and of themselves because of this land issue. And that had all, you know, everything to do with the fact that they weren't constructed as the ideal village-based cultivator, right? They're still outside of that, but they are, I mean, the Ottoman, like they're, they're very explicitly concerned about population in this region during this period. Um, One of the, the other main way that, elites could could protest was to say, we're going to, you know, leave, if you tax us too much, we're going to go to British occupied Egypt. And this was not a 
desirable outcome for the Ottoman administration, because by this point in international law, having a viable population is a really important way that you claim sovereignty over territory, right? So absolutely, they wanted them to settle down in villages, but they also really didn't want them to leave. I mean, they had this power in the state structure. And if they had not been constructible as loyal Muslims, I think that would have looked very different, right? And so I think recognizing that and recognizing that the goal was administrative integration rather than juridical isolation, which is what I argue happens during the mandates. And again, I'm, I'm arguing that based on other people's research, but it is what I see happening in other people's research um, is, is very different, right? So I don't think that the Ottoman aim was to create quote unquote colonies in this, in this region, even if they sometimes saw parallels between you know, other lightly governed regions and European colonies, you know, the attitude of the British and French mandate administrations is really quite different, right? There's, there's not talk of like integrating these regions into some wider imperial administration, at least to my knowledge, they're exceptionalized right from the beginning. And right from the beginning, those administrations are dealing with these pretty effective anti-colonial nationalist movements that, you know, it's, it's very important. That divide and rule strategy is really important for the survival of the British and French mandates, right? And so the idea is that they're going to create these, you know, juridically different Bedouin um, spaces and identities, and they're going to create alliances within those spaces, and they're, that's how they're going to maintain their, their viability, um, which is really different from um, the Ottoman administration, which I think is constructing them as these potential subject citizens. And there's all these like, you know, and I get into the, the problematics of, of citizenship in the last chapter, and I won't get into it now, but um, you know, in, in, in the British and French, I don't think there was ever, there was ever a sense that they could be anything but, um, but imperial subjects and sort of imperial subjects that were like uniquely malleable, right. That could be sort of, they could do with them what they, what they pleased. And I, um, yeah, so I do see that as, as fundamentally different, but again, I think that future research on, 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 um, these ethno-racial identity questions and, you know, really what, um, this this idea of the Arab was in Ottoman administration will nuance all of that even more. I guess I would just again encourage that nuance and that long perspective, right? Because it's really hard to understand late Ottoman administration and what it meant on the ground if you don't understand what it's what it's attempting to replace, right? Which which I do am trying to argue is is kind of a different mode of of governance. Um, but maybe I'll leave it there. I'm sure I didn't get to everything. I can already think of 10 things that I missed, but that's always the case. Uh, but thank you so much um, for coming on to share your research and further insights um, into this period and place with us. Uh, this is really interesting, just like selfishly uh, for me and my research. This is really interesting um, and really helpful for me. Um, so I really appreciate you taking the time to come on and talk with me. Thank you, Maggie. I'm really glad we did this. This was like the questions were just really very, very thought provoking. I spent a lot of time thinking about them in the past few days, especially the built environment stuff. And I um yeah, I'm just I'm excited for your initiative here, and I hope to learn from other iterations of the podcast and from your research. I'm I'm excited to see what comes out of it. Great, yeah, and I'm looking forward to uh, reading your future work um, on this context. Thank you, thank you.